Let me come at uh, being Irish a little bit differently than Gary did last night. Uh, a friend of mine recently explained to me what different cultures find enjoyable about the gospel. This is where I get to offend you all. He said, you know why the English enjoy the gospel? They like the gospel because they can talk politely about it. The Welsh, they enjoy the gospel because they can sing about it. The Scots, they enjoy the gospel because it's free. <laughs> the Americans, they enjoy the gospel. The Americans enjoy the gospel because they can make money from it. But the Irish, he said, the Irish, you know why the Irish like the gospel? He said, the Irish like the gospel because they can fight about it. <laughs> a penetrating insight into contextualization, I thought. And I think actually Paul might say, if you open your Bibles, please, to that uh, reading we just had read, I think Paul might actually say the same as he did in verse 13. This testimony is true of you Irish. Just as much as he did with the Cretans. When, did you pick that up in verse 12 where he described the Cretans as always liars? evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I mean, there's a penetrating piece of insightful contextualization. For those involved in leadership here, uh, you'll know that over the last, say, 20 or 30 years, you, as we all have been encouraged to see Western society as the new missionary front line. And as such, we've been then told to look for positive connections in our society. I imagine that's what you're doing. You're always thinking about this. Week in, week out, you're, you're trying to get the churches engaged and how does it reach positively out into the community. But it struck me as I was preparing for today that when it came to contextualization, particularly in the island of Crete, Paul wasn't necessarily interested in finding the positive connections. Positive, Paul was actually positively looking for the disconnections. He was actually urging Titus, to live a completely different life than the one that he saw going on around him. And as we come to study uh, this first chapter of Titus, what I think we'll see is simply that, that Paul helps us to see the great difference between the culture of Crete and perhaps our own culture then as well, and the culture of the church. Different. Different. I think he's really telling Titus, look, don't be afraid to be different. Because this is what the world needs to see, just as uh, we've been thinking about already this morning. So don't be afraid. We're here at Kinfire. We're thinking about uh, being God's people. We're thinking about the church. And I'd like to come at it three ways with you uh, this morning. What I'd like you to see, firstly, is why the church, what makes the church so special? Then secondly, what special shepherds are needed for such a church? And then thirdly, what such shepherds should do for such a special church? What makes the church so special? Don't worry if you missed it, we'll come through, we'll work through them as we go along this morning. What makes the church so special? What special shepherds are needed for such a church? And what such shepherds should do for such a special church? Um, just reading, this is just by the way, uh, the word church actually is only mentioned maybe three or four times across the pastoral epistles, but it seems that you can make a really good argument that this is Paul's top priority. He has given Titus an expansive vision for the goodness that flows out of the gospel of truth for the entire church so that it will live 
differently, even in an inhospitable context. It will shine brightly. It will be beautiful. So we're going to look at this together as we uh, come to Titus 1. Do keep your Bibles open uh, this morning as we see how the the goodness of the gospel um, changes our lives to be those that are good for the sake of the encouragement of one another, the building up of the church, and the winning of the nations. Firstly, Paul wants us to see what makes the church so special. This is perhaps one of the longest introductions that he gives to any of his letters, beginning in in verse 1. And he really is telling us what is his greatest life's concern. What makes his heart beat? He begins by saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he is an appointed ambassador with divine authority. That is where he's speaking from. But he doesn't use that authority to insist that he served. Just like the Lord Jesus, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so he says, I have been appointed by God and Jesus Christ. Look what he says next. These are so important, these simple little words as he begins, because they take us right to the heart of his concern. Here should be the heart concern for every pastor in here this morning. What is it that really got him out of bed in the morning? What is it that really took up his his imagination? He says, I've been appointed by God and Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, and into verse two, the hope, their hope of eternal life. Three distinctives that allude to the the unique nature of the church, its origin, its activity, and its destiny. This is what makes the church so special. Its origin, where does it come from? Where do your churches come from? You meet together on a weekly basis. What actually has happened? Well, your origin is in God. Look, he says, my concern is for God's elect. They're not Paul's. They don't belong to any other man. The church belongs to God. It's in continuity with his promises down through the ages, as he goes on to say. In fact, the church is evidence of God's faithfulness to his promises down through the ages. And as such, Paul's concern is for the faith of God's elect. He wants them to be clear what it is that they believe. He wants them to be sure in their relationship with God. But his concern is not only simply for for their faith in in God, his concern also is in their relationship with one another because he goes on to say he's concerned about the knowledge of the truth. Do you see that? And that moves it in slightly a different direction. It's not simply that he's concerned about what they, their relationship with God. He's also concerned about their relationship with one another because it is the knowledge of the truth, look at this, that leads to godliness. This is a major concern in Titus. Right teaching produces right living, living godly lives, living with, living for each other. This is the activity of the church. This is what the world ought to see us doing, living in a way that is different, that is radically different with and for each other. Because the church indeed does have a great destiny. It has got a great prize that awaits it. It uh, comes from God, lives for God. And how does he finish? Well, it has got a great destiny because it will be with God forever. This is what makes the church so special. Beginning, middle, and end. We know where we've come from. We know where we're going. 
Therefore, we can be clear about how we should be living today. And Paul is simply amazed that he, the likes of him, should be given this message, which would bring such a church into existence. He goes on to say in verse 3, that at the proper time, manifested through his word, through the preaching. This is the, the church characterized by faith, the faith, the knowledge, the hope that he's just spoken about, actually was realized, actualized by his preaching. Now, what is this? What is this for us here this morning? Well, I think it is an oasis, and it is a great reality check. It's an oasis for all of you who are involved in leadership. This is an oasis for every Titus, for every shepherd, for every elder, for every pastor, for every leader. Because I know, (laughs) I know that this is not how you always think about your church. Born from God, for godly living, destined for glory. That's not how you think about your little church. Your little church. Your little unnoticed, unimpressive, unimportant church. We have just church planted in North Dublin. Actually not, we we haven't just church planted. We've been at it for three years. Um, And we put out our teardrop flags every Sunday. We turn up the music. um, We open the windows. And most people just keep on walking past, walking on by, as though there's nothing important going on behind the, those walls whatsoever. It's not just little churches. I know. You and your big churches, your needy, burdensome, unappreciative big churches. I know that this is not how you as a pastor, as a leader, as a shepherd, think about your church. Uh, we don't know the scale of the task that was set before Titus. Uh, it was gargantuan. <laughs> it wasn't just one church he was looking after or even a city with other churches. It was an entire country <laughs> that he was being tasked to look after. And yet, regardless of the disappointments, regardless of the hardships and struggles, what does Paul want Titus to know? What does he want you to know as a shepherd, as an elder, as a minister, as a pastor? He simply wants you to know it's worth it. This is an oasis for you. Come back to this again and again. Born of God, for godly living, destined for glory. But it's also a huge reality check for us all. Let's get with this. It is a massive reality check for us all. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that famous preacher, uh, preaching just after the Second World War in London, I'm not sure he was thinking, he probably wasn't thinking about this exact passage whenever he said these words, but they are stunning. Listen to what he said. This is the reality check for us all, whether it's the church we're thinking about all the time as pastors or leaders, or whether we just turn up on a Sunday morning and expect everything to run as it should. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. I want to get back the discipline of the church, discipline for the minister as for the members. Now listen. And to recapture the glorious conception of the Christian life, that men and women may feel that there is no honor which can be conferred upon them so great as their church membership. And that ministers may feel that there is nothing in life to be compared with the preaching of this glorious and incomparable gospel. Did you get that? No honor that can be conferred upon men and women so great as what? As belonging to the church. 
born of God, for godly living, destined for glory. That's what makes the church so special. And it's only when you see that will you be prepared to live differently today. Now, given that, Paul goes on to say, well, if it's going to, to live, if this church is going to survive, if it's going to last the course, there's something that you need to do, Titus. Something that's very, very important for the life of the church. So we're going to move on. Secondly, look at what special shepherds are needed for such a church. I, I would just love to have seen Titus's face when he uh, read what followed after that lovely and long introduction. You know, okay, the church is so special. That's wonderful. Keep telling me that, Paul. I love to hear that. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Ah, yes, Paul. <laughs> About that. Now, I've just said it is a mammoth task that Titus was facing. It wasn't just one church or a city, it was the entire country that was on his doorstep. And he's reminded here, therefore, what it is that is needed for these churches to live, for these churches to last. I actually think it's quite comforting to see the fact that um, these churches have been brought together by the gospel. Paul and Titus had been in Crete. Um, Paul had left Titus in Crete. Uh, but it seems as though the gospel had gone so quickly ahead of them that different communities of gospel people had been gathered together. And it seems to be that they were, they were launching these churches, but still with a great lack. I think there's a great comfort in that. I think this suits our context. Um, and the lack, as it appears, wasn't something insignificant. It wasn't something marginal or minor. What is it that these churches actually lacked? They lacked spiritual leadership. I think that's Great to see the flexibility that we have, because sometimes if you're involved in church leadership or, or different networks, you can think, do I need uh, to gather my leaders first and then launch, or do I launch first and then get my leaders, see them grow? And the answer that the Bible gives is, eh, both. The most important thing here seems to have been in sharing the gospel. It's a huge encouragement to us all. It's the democracy of, of the Christian life. We all carry the gospel. We all can be gospel sharers. Yes, we might not all be Bible teachers, but we all can be gospel sharers. And it seems to be that the gospel had run so quick, so fast ahead of what was happening in Crete. Titus couldn't keep up. So Paul reminds him, look, okay, you may have launched without leadership, but for the sake of the life and longevity of the church, this is absolutely essential. Appoint spiritual leaders. Appoint godly men who can lead the churches that have been gathered by the gospel. Right, look, <laughs> let me step, step on this landmine, shall I? I may have offended you at the start, so let me offend you a little bit more. Um, it is godly men at this point that Titus is being tasked with appointing. Uh, that is consistent throughout the pastoral epistles. Titus and Timothy. That's not to the exclusion. I know this will jar with some of us in a gathering this size it's got to. But it's not to the exclusion, as I've just said, of every member ministry. 
It's not even to the exclusion of prominent ministry by women. But for this particular task, Paul is saying, look, it's the responsibility, Titus, that you must lay at men's doors. It's actually even more restrictive than many of us actually think because this rule is not open to all men. That's why Paul goes on to describe, to give a very exacting list of what type of man actually he should appoint. So can I ask you, if it is an issue for you, you can come and talk to me later. Um, Set aside your issues of gender and patriarchy and feminism. I've seen Barbie, I know. It's what everybody's talking about at this minute in time. Okay, it's a very good, I would recommend it. It's a very good movie. It'll appear regularly in my sermons, I think, over the next term. (laughs) There's a funny story I could tell you about that, but um, can you put yourself in Titus's shoes? And can you see what exactly he's being asked to look for when it comes to, to men who should be put in charge, to men who will lead? Because it's only as he puts these types of men in charge will the church last He's not concerned with the externals. Do you know, I don't have time this morning to contrast what we would normally throw on a stage, the charismatic, the controversialist, (laughs) uh, the comedian who can attract a a crowd. All of that is so superficial because he's not interested in externals at all. What Titus needs to be concerned about is internals. What's going on in the life of the leader? Internally, what's he like? Verse 6, 7, and 8. What's he like behind closed doors? What type of man is he at home? He says, because if he can't lead his own household well, how might he be expected to lead God's household well? What's, li- what's he like behind closed doors? What's he, what's he like below the lid of his own life? Is he arrogant, quick-tempered, given to too much drink? Is he undisciplined? You've got to look carefully. You might say, look, no one really has the business of looking into another person's life like that. Nobody, in fact, can tell another person's heart. Nobody can see inside our hearts. Our hearts are a mystery. But we all can discern character over the long term. And that's what Titus has to be looking for. Leaders like this. That's why he, I think says it not once, but twice. He says, these men have to be, verse six, above reproach in the house. They also have to be above reproach in difficult pastoral situations in God's house. He has no embarrassment in saying this again in verse 7. Verse 6, he's got to be above reproach in his home. Verse 7, he's got to be above reproach in God's home. Now, what is this? Well, I think this, this is both realistic and demanding. Notice he doesn't say that if anyone wants to be an overseer, he must be perfect, right? He doesn't say that. He says they've got to be above reproach. It is by grace that we have all been saved. And there will be things, speaking generally, 
to you as members of churches that you will see in your minister's life that will cause your eyebrows to, ra- to be raised. There will be things that surprise you, perhaps. He doesn't say that someone like this must be above reproach. What I think you need to see is that it's not perfection, but progress. And when you find things, it's, it is a bit, you know, it is realistic. Because not any one minister in here would be able to stand up amongst us this morning and say that they hit the bullseye every time on each of these marks. If there was, don't believe them. And when you find things that disappoint you in your leaders, it's an opportunity for you to exercise discipline perhaps as a church, yes, but in the context of grace, for you to treat them with the same grace you know that has saved you. They're they're in no less need of being sanctified than you are. However, whilst it's realistic and not, you can't expect perfection, it is demanding. And each and every man who puts themselves up for a task like this needs to be living, at least aiming for the highest of principles. We cannot use uh, grace as a license. Above reproach in your home. above reproach in the church. Because this is the type of life that is needed if the, if the church is going to last. And my, does it not give us plenty to think about, especially as we look at the state of many of our churches in, the land, in, in this land today. What does this, what does this list do? It eliminates pride. Above all else, it's a tragedy when we see leaders in the churches, in the pulpits, and you know, not perhaps by what they're saying, but simply by the way they say it, that that man is a proud man. Pray for your leaders that they would be humble. It eliminates pride. It also eliminates, actually, chasing after the opinions of others. Because like I've just said, Paul's not interested in externals. He's interested in internals when he's talking about this. And what I find this to do actually has been quite helpful because it has almost quietened the clamor of the opinions of many, many people. Any leader who stands up, they stand before the court of many, many people. And it is a proclivity, it is a danger for all leaders to want people to like them to chase after the good opinion of others. But what is it that Paul says you should be chasing after as a leader? Come closer to home. What is it that you should be chasing after as a leader? What is it that that your wife would say about you? I thought about it like this. I don't know if it's helpful. What would would your wife say about you when you're dead? (laughs) To her closest friends. But do you, do you cherish the opinion of your wife? Perhaps over and above anyone else's. Do you? And could she say about you, you as you are, not you as you are before many people, not you, you as you stand up and perform or, or give a, a talk, but you as you are behind closed doors, you as a man 
could she say about you that, yes, he's a good man. He's faithful. He's reliable. He's true. He's trustworthy. He's sacrificial. He's servant-hearted. He doesn't complain. He's not arrogant. He's not quick-tempered. Could she say that about you? As you stand before the bar of Scripture, you don't need to worry about other people. As you stand before the bar of Scripture, how do you view yourself? That's all that you need to worry about. And if you do, and if you get that right, you will live a life that will see your church last. It may go up and it may go down. But if you're like this, it will keep going. The church is so special. Born of God for godly living, destined for glory. It needs special shepherds who will love and care for such a church as this. Lastly, what is it that they're to do? What are these special shepherds actually to do? I shouldn't have been surprised by this, but I was. (laughs) Why does Paul begin by extolling the value of the church? Why does he lay it on thick and heavy to Titus to make sure that he puts on the right people, gets the right people in place for the life of the church? Well, it's because these churches in particular in Crete were in terrible danger of following lousy, detestable, disobedient, unfit types. Did you pick that up? You see that at the end of our reading today? (laughs) They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Again, it's another piece of brilliant contextualization uh, where he's trying to win friends and influence people. But doesn't that surprise you? That these churches in Crete were in danger of following those types of people? You might say, oh, we would never do that. No, we would never follow such people like that. We're far more wise than to be duped by such people as Titus may have been dealing with, but really? Look at what Paul does. I think he does something really clever, very, very helpful for us in the rest of our passage because he says, look, on the surface, these guys have a a veneer of religiosity. They are, for example, pick it up with me in verse 10, of the, uh, the circumcision group. So they do appear very religious, these people. Very religious. They... They're in it, we're told in verse 11, for shameful gain, but that probably means that they appeared needy and deserving of help. They're devoted, we're told in verse 14, to Jewish myths and the commands of people. So they would have been dogmatic on certain things, which is actually what many of us are looking for. Someone who will be completely black and white and give us all the answers. They were pious and legalistic because to them, nothing was pure. And they actually profess to know God. Now, what would you do with someone like that? Religious, pious, legalistic, devoted, dogmatic, professing. How would you answer such a person as that? Paul says, in fact, he tells Titus um, that they are no different from the world. This is the, the, the brilliant twist that Paul gives to it all. He says, actually, although they appear religious under that veneer, they're empty talkers. They're deceivers. And in secret, I think that's what that uh, verse 12 is doing in in the middle of it all. They're actually no, no different from the rest of the world. 
They are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. But on the surface of it all, they appear to be the real thing. Could you spot it? Other churches, other older churches around our country, I think, are evidence of the fact that we've missed them. And we've missed them big time. Particularly speaking, okay, I might actually only be referring to my own denomination, the Church of Ireland, where the empty buildings are testimony to the fact that such people have gotten in and robbed God's people. But it's not simply a danger for older churches and denominations. It's actually something that starts right at the very beginning because, look, these churches have just been started. This is the church plant in Crete. You're no less danger. Since the devil is real, where would you expect to find him at work? Where would you expect him to see see his most subtle and brilliant work? I remember this dawning on me as a theological student that the devil and his handiwork wasn't seen on O'Connell Street at one o'clock on a Friday morning. It was seen on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock or at 2 p.m. in a theological institute. That's where the devil's going to be busiest. That's where he's going to be sowing his seeds. That's where he's going to be whispering in potential leaders' ears, did God really say... And you might think, hold on a minute. We're, we're a biblical church, right? We're in the world, but not of the world. Can I say to you, you're probably actually most at risk. Because the churches that are in the world, but not of the world, are in most danger of becoming like the world. For that is where the devil is going to be busiest. That is where he's going to be sowing his seeds of disobedience, of dissension of disbelief. So what is it that Titus was to do in response to this? Where was his confidence to be? What power did Titus have to dismantle such subtle subterfuge? What was he going to do? Well, you can all breathe a sigh of relief if you thought that I forgot verse nine, because this is it. And it brings us back actually nicely, I think, to what Gary was talking about last night. This is it all. Verse nine is all we've got. Have a look at verse nine. Actually, do you know what? Just since you've been listening to me for such a long time and it's getting rather warm in here, why don't we all read it together? Can we do that? Let's read it together. Verse nine, let's read it together. Because this is what Paul says we have so that churches will live, so that churches will last, so that we will attract others by the beauty of our lives. Verse nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. Len, put that to music, would you please? This is all we've got. He who aspires for the office of an overseer desires a noble task, right? It is a high calling. It always has been. That's why so much emphasis has already been laid on the character of such a man because of what he's got to do. He needs to stand with integrity of character and do what? What should you expect? (laughs) We heard this last night. What's your one big thing from last night? This is what 
he has to do. He has to stand with an integrity of character and speak what has already been said. Do you see that? What is it that he's to do? He is to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And with those two words, there is a whole hell gathered against it to stop that man from doing exactly that. He is to do this. This is all we have got. He is to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So we don't necessarily need, as Gary said last night, to go to church expecting to hear some brilliantly, blindingly, sparklingly new revelation. If we do that, actually we may be in more danger than we think. We need to be reminded because we are so quick to forget. So we need people who will hold firm, that they will be an example to all of us to hold firm so that when you go out into your Monday morning, you'll hold firm. You don't need anything more. This is all we've got. And it is brilliant, actually, because it is all that we need. What is it that Paul says actually will happen as Titus teaches these men to hold firm. What is it that's going to be accomplished in the church? Two things. He says, if you do this, you will give instruction in sound doctrine, encourage some, and you will rebuke those who contradict it. By the same thing, two ends. You'll comfort and encourage the sheep, and you'll chase the wolves away. It's all we've got. This is what we've got to offer the world. Thankfully, it's all we need because what is it that he is to hold firm to? The trustworthy word as taught. The apostolic witness, which opens up to us the revelation of God, which is a word from outside this world, which liberates people into the freedom of life, that beautiful, holy life. Because as that word is taught, as it is shared, God meets with us. Again, as we heard last night. Dick Lucas is a, he's a minister now, long retired, and he was telling a story actually of coming to Greystones to do a conference. And he was uh, preaching a sermon about the powerful word, sowing the seed, parable of the sower. And he said he was struck because as he drove into the conference center in Greystones, uh, the driveway had been tarmacked, and it just was beautiful, right? It was unlike any other Irish road. It was smooth, and it was shiny. It was black. But he said right in the middle of that that driveway, an annoying little dandelion had poked its head head up, as if to say you can't keep good weeds like us down. Powerful weeds. What is it Paul's reminding Timothy of here? You've got a powerful word. A word that has changed your life. Sorry, Titus. I keep on calling him Timothy, have I? Um, a powerful word that has changed your life, Titus. That will change the lives of the leaders you, you, you appoint and will change the lives of the churches that last. So do nothing else than this. Hold firm, hold fast to the trustworthy word. Titus was to emphasize for the leader, shepherding the church, that they needed to be faithful to the knowledge of the truth that produced godliness. Let's not be afraid of being different. Let's press further in to the life that we've been won for. Let's live holy lives, beautiful lives, 
And let's encourage those who are in leadership above us to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you indeed would have mercy upon us, uh, that you would enlarge our vision for the church, that we would see how precious and beautiful it is to you, and that we would live our lives then in the light of it, counting it our greatest, our greatest joy to belong to your people. And may you be with those who are tasked with leading. May they equip themselves well so that they have no need to be ashamed. May they do our churches good. We pray that they would fend off those who seek to only destroy. And may we glory in that great and awesome day when the church will be united as Jesus returns again. In his name we pray, amen.